It's been a good day again today, and uh, it's good that you're here again this evening. I appreciate your presence and uh, hope that by being here tonight, the lesson will be uh, of benefit to you and uh, will give you some things to think about along the lines of unity and the church of which we are a part of. An oft-repeated phrase that is heard is that um, just attend the church of your choice. I'm sure you've heard that. You come into some communities, and um, on the side of the road as you enter into the house, it'll have like the Kiwanis Club and the Lions Club and various organizations in the town. And typically in that list of sign placards is a, is a sign that says, Attend the church of your choice. A few years ago, I went home to visit with my parents and uh, I was sitting and reading their uh, local newspaper and I was reading a religious article in the religious section of the page by one of the religious leaders in that area. And as he closed his article, which I don't remember what it was, but I do remember this, and, and he added just a little more to that phrase, attend the church of your choice. He closed his article by saying this, attend the church of your choice and feel good about it. And I thought, you know, is, is that really what God wants us to do? And is that what God expects from us, or is God pleased with that very thing? I've come to the conclusion that though that man and others may say that very thing, that they don't even believe it themselves. Attend the church of your choice, really? Really? What about churches that do not believe in the deity of Christ? Would it be all right to attend that church? I think you would have people backpedaling and saying, no, wait a second, now, I, I didn't mean that kind of a church, and, and I, I know that they don't. A number of years ago, I was asked to deliver a, a lecture at Fried Hardeman on, of all things, satanic ritualism. Now, why they thought I knew something about that, I don't know. But uh, prior to that lecture, I was trying to get, there, there is a book called the Satanic Bible, and there's a handbook called the Satanic Rituals, and, and so I was trying to get a copy of those, those two books. And uh, just a side note, it was, I couldn't find them anywhere. I went to Missouri, and my father-in-law took me to the library. I enjoyed asking for that book there just to see his face, because when the librarian said, what, what can I help you with? I said, I'd like to um, get a copy of the Satanic Bible. She stepped back a little bit, looked at me, and then looked at my father-in-law like, what kind of a son-in-law do you have? But that was worth it just to see that happen. But uh, what ended up happening is, is I found the, the book and, and delivered the lesson. But I, I wonder if those people who say, attend the church of your choice, would include the Church of Satan. That is an organized religion in our nation today. And they do have their Bible, just like we have our Bible. I don't think people really mean that when they say that. And what we eventually will get back to is, well, what I'm talking about is a church that follows the Bible. And that's where the rub comes. I have a question that I want to ask tonight as we get into this lesson, and the question is, do you think that the present state of religion in the world today is what God originally had in his mind when he said, I'm going to build a church? 
When Jesus promised in Matthew 16 and verse 18 that I'm going to build a church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it, did he have in mind the thing that you see in our community here or in some other community? Did he have in mind churches that are called by different names and who practice different doctrines and who hold different doctrines? Did he have in mind for churches who are so different that they cannot coexist together to be competing for the souls of people who come into that community to convince them of their direction or of this direction? Is that what God had in mind when he said, I want to build the church? If it's not what he had in mind, then I guess the next question is, is how do we fix it? And can it be fixed? And I'd like for us to look at that, that question tonight together. And let's begin, first of all, by just simply addressing this question. What was and what is the Lord's desire concerning his church? What is it that he wants? When he said he was going to build a church... Just what did he have in mind? Well, let's start with John chapter 17. If you have your Bible, open it, and let's look again at John chapter 17 that uh, was just read. In this chapter, this is, as, as Benny said, right before the death of Jesus. And Jesus prays really for three different people in this prayer. Uh, we've often called... Matthew chapter 6, the Lord's Prayer, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That certainly is what Jesus taught his disciples to pray and taught them how to pray. But this is a prayer recorded in John 17 that is really the Lord's Prayer. This is what he prayed. And he began chapter 17 by praying for himself. And then he moved from himself and he began to pray for his disciples, beginning in verse 6. And then as you get to the end of this prayer, he prays, Listen, did you know that Jesus prayed for you? He, he prayed for you. Turn in your Bible to John chapter 17, verse 21, or verse 20. I do not pray for these alone. He's talking about his disciples, those that he had hand-selected. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus is praying for me in that verse. Jesus said, not only am I praying for these guys right over here that I have hand-selected, but I'm praying for everyone who through their word will come to believe in me. And that's how I learned, and that's how you learned. So this is a prayer that Jesus prayed, not just for people living in the first century, but this is a prayer that he prayed for you. Jesus prayed for you. And here's what he said, that they all may be one. As thou, Father are to me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world might believe that you sent me. When Jesus prayed for his disciples and for those who would believe in him for ages to come, his prayer was that they would be united, that they would be one as Christ and the Father are one, and the purpose is, set, is expressed so that the world will believe. In other words, disunity, not getting along, not believing the same thing, not even being able to worship together because of differences, that will cause the world not to believe. But if you can come together and be united and be one, that's what I pray for. Turn also in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
as Paul writes to the Corinthians, he had gotten word or received word from the household of Chloe that there were divisions among Christians at Corinth. They had begun to divide up over different men. They they had their favorite preachers and had actually kind of formed little sects where they would, uh, you know, I'm of Paul and well, I'm of Apollos and and I'm of Cephas and I'm of Christ and they. They had their little groups within the body of Christ. And Paul raises the question in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10. He says, well, not a question, it's, it's an admonition. Now, he said, I plead with you, I'm begging you, brethren, by the name or the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul reiterates what Jesus said. Jesus prayed that his followers would be one. And Paul says, listen, I'm begging you folks, speak the same thing. Be of the same mind and of the same judgment. Don't let there be divisions among you. You can turn on over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And as you look at verse 25, the Apostle Paul says that there should be no, well, the the word that is used is schism in the body. That word schism simply means division. There should be no division in the body of Christ. That's what Paul instructed in 1 Corinthians 12. And again, in Ephesians 4, verses Well, 1 through 6, really, in verse 1, he says, you know, walk worthy of the calling wherein you're called. And he tells them to endeavor, verse 3, to endeavor. Give work to this. Don't, Don't just let it happen if it does or if it doesn't. He says, endeavor to keep or maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And then he says, there's one body, one Spirit, even as you're called, one hope of your calling, one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. Unity. Oneness. When I look at the religious world today, I see people who are divided, and they're divided over the name they wear, the name by which they call themselves. They're divided over the doctrines that they teach. They're divided over the practices in which they engage. And they are so divided that they can't and we can't even worship together, though we claim to believe in Jesus. And so you come to a community, instead of seeing the oneness, which was the desire of the Lord, you have a building on this corner and a building on that corner and a building down the road, and, we, and we're all competing for the souls of people to come be a part of us. Is that what the Lord had in mind when he said, I will build my church? Well, according to these four passages and others, that is not what he had in mind. He had something better than that in mind. But now, if that's not what he had in mind, how do we go about fixing this? How do we go about trying to, to, to find what Jesus had in mind? I don't want to go to God in the day of judgment and say, I know this is what you wanted, but I just never got around to doing it. I never got around to being it. 
I want to be what Jesus wants me to be. And I want this church to be what God wants it to be. I don't want to disappoint him and say, that is not what I had in mind. You guys missed it. So how do we go about being the church that Jesus prayed for and being one like he desired? Can it even be done? Can we who live in the 21st century practice what the Lord had originally in his mind? My answer to that is, of course. And I know you've heard this illustration many, many times, I'm sure, but it it serves, I think, well to illustrate this this point. If there were, nearly everybody knows how to play baseball to some degree or another. We we know the basic rules. You you hit the ball and you run to first base and second and third and you eventually come home and and we know that you're allowed three strikes and then you're out. Four balls, and then you take your base if you have four balls. And we know that there are nine men in the field, and, and uh, we, we basically know how it works. Suppose that for some reason baseball had become outlawed. People caught playing baseball would be persecuted, even imprisoned, and put to death. And so the only baseball that's played for maybe a thousand years is baseball that is played where no one sees and no one knows, hidden away, tucked away, where not many know about it. And through the years, baseball, because of its underground nature, people kind of forgot how the rules went. And there may be a segment of people who, instead of running to first base, they run to third base when they hit the ball. They, they just got that confused. And they remember after a thousand years, they remember of... Well, let's see, was it, was it three strikes and four balls or was it four strikes and three balls? And they get that mixed up. And instead of nine men in the field, they put ten because that outfield sure is wide and it would make a whole lot nicer to have four men out there instead of three. And so they play the game. They're playing the game of baseball, but it's, it's not baseball in its purity. Suppose a thousand years later, they discover a, a rule book, the official rule book of baseball. And they pick that book up, and even though it's been a thousand years since the game has been played in its purity, they look at that book and they say, oh, guys, wait a second. We only get three strikes and four balls. We, we had that backwards. We, we were doing four strikes and three balls. Let's fix that. Let's start playing. And you know how when we hit the ball, we run this direction? Well, according to this book, we need to be running this direction. And so they fix that. And from what I see, only nine men are allowed to take the field. And so we've had too many men in the field. And let's pull the one back in the dugout and we'll just play with nine. Now, if they go through, and that's a simplistic illustration, but if they go through and fix those things that through the years of ignorance and lack of attention and not knowing any better just through the innovations of men, if they fix all that and restore it to the pattern of that rule book, would they be playing baseball in its purity? Absolutely they would. 
And that's the challenge that we face today in the 21st century. There was a time when Christianity was oppressed. And, and there was a time when people didn't have access to the Word of God like we do today. And, and things crept in over the centuries. And innovations, doctrines of men that can't be found in Scripture. And if I could just go back and measure what is being practiced today with the, the rule book, the Word of God, the Bible... And I make those corrections, even though I'm 21 centuries separated from the beginning of the church, can I not be and can I not practice the Christianity of the first century? I would say that we can. And that's what we need to do. Now, how do I know and and how can I find that out? Well, a couple years ago, I was asked to speak do a seminar, present a seminar in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I'd never been there before. That's way up above Montana, somewhere up there. And I knew no one. And so I got off the plane in Edmonton. They had never met me, and I had never met them. How did they find me? How did they know to pick me up and take me where? Well, it it was not very difficult Because before we had, actually, before I flew up there, I said, all right, here's what you do. I'm 6'6", so that rules out a whole lot of folks right there. I said, I'm extremely good looking. Uh, No, no, I don't want to ruin my illustration. Wait a second, let me take that back. But I'm 6'6", I have brown hair. At the time, I had a mustache. and, And I went through and I described myself. And sure enough, when I got off the plane, some man standing over there said, Steve Higginbotham, and I went over and he, he through marks of identification, he, he knew nothing about me, but through marks of identification, you know how quickly you can narrow this down and say, well, I know those hundred people aren't the right thing because they're too short, and that man doesn't have hair, or this man has blonde hair, or, and you go through those marks of identification and you can figure it out. I'll tell you what the mode of operation that Satan has chosen in this world is to fill the the world with lookalikes, counterfeits. If I had a quarter and I just kind of pitched it on the, the ground right here and I said, within five minutes, can you find that quarter? Well, nobody would have any problem with that uh, if I just pitched it right there. But if I put a mark on it and then had three dump trucks come in and dump loads of quarters up here and say, all right, there's a quarter right here, can you find it in two minutes? That makes it a whole lot more difficult. You might be able to find it, but there are so many things that look alike, it it could take a longer time. I think that's exactly what Satan has tried to do. That's his mode of operation in, in our society today. God offers salvation in his church through the blood of Christ. And Satan has tried to fill the world with churches that look like, that resemble the real thing, but are not the real thing. And he's confused a lot of people. Our challenge in the 21st century is to go back and practice and to be what the Lord had in mind When he said, I'm going to build my church. And we can do that, but it will require certain things. It will require courage. It will require courage to 
rid ourselves of the traditions of our fathers. If something isn't biblical, we we shed it. We jettison it. Do, Do we have the courage to do that? Long-held, cherished beliefs that I was sure were in the Bible, but when I learn it's not, do I have the courage to say, I will practice that no longer? Those of you who have been raised in homes who have known the truth and you were brought up knowing the truth, maybe we don't appreciate the dilemma that other people face. Uh, It is hard to give up long-held, cherished beliefs when we learn that's not what the Bible teaches. But it requires courage to do that. If we're to be the church that Jesus built, it's going to require courage to leave behind denominational bodies that only add to the divisiveness and, and the conflict and the confusion and the division denominationalism by its very nature is divisive. It stands opposed to what Jesus prayed for. I once heard a man thank God for the denominations because it gives everybody a chance to find something that that fits them. That's not what Jesus had in mind. Jesus said, I'm not looking for things to fit you. I, I want you to be one. I want you to do some changing and come together and be united in my truth. We would need to have courage to go against mom and dad. And that's a difficult thing. I had a Bible study with a young man once, and when we got to the end of the study, he said, Steve, I, I believe you. What you've said is right. And I don't know how to answer any of it. You're, you're right. But, he said, I can never, at least not while my mother's alive, I can never change because I'd break her heart. He had more allegiance to his mother than he did to Christ. It takes courage. And if we want to be the the Lord's church today, it will require the courage to do those things that we mentioned. If we want to be the church today that God had in mind, then, and I I don't know how else to say it, but what, what we ought to do is practice an island approach to Christianity. If there were a group of people on an island who did not know about the religious world as it exists, at least in in the United States, and one day there's a, a box that floats up or a chest, and in that is a Bible, and they begin to read about the creation and and a, a maker, and they believe, begin to read about God taking on flesh and coming to dwell among us and becoming a sacrifice for our sins. And and they believe that He died on the cross for them and they are absolutely committed to making this one who died for them the Lord of their life. And so they begin to put into practice and implement the things that this book tells them to do. And, And they know nothing of any... Can they after they implement the things that that book teaches them, and only those things that that book teaches, what denomination are they? When they begin to meet on the first day of the week and partake of the Lord's Supper and worship and and have this, this unity, this fellowship together, what denomination are they? I would contend they're, they're none. 
They're non-denominational. They're just the church of Jesus Christ. If Peter, you know, I like, I like some of the science fiction things. You remember the time machine where he sat down in that little thing and he pulled that lever back and there he goes. And he goes back in time. Wouldn't it be neat to be able to do that? What if we could just do that and go back and say, I land in the first century and I run into Peter. It's Jerusalem. It's a week after Pentecost. And I stop Peter and I say, Peter, I'm from the future. I'm from the 21st century. And there is a burning question 2,100 years later. And I really would appreciate it if you would answer this question because I need to know. What denomination are you anyway? Because I want to be a part of your denomination. How do you think you would answer that? What are you talking about with denomination? I'm a child of God. I'm a Christian. I'm a member of the, the, the Lord's church. I, I don't know what you mean by what denomination am I. So I don't get much help from Peter, and I just push it forward a little bit, and I, I land in about 60 A.D., and I find the Apostle Paul. And I say, Paul, you wrote a lot of books. We're still reading about you and uh, after you. And I'd like to have you answer a burning question from my era. Would you please tell me what denomination you are? Because I want to be a part of that same denomination. What do you think Paul would say? What do you mean, what denomination am I? Have you not read what I've written? I I told you guys not to be divided. I I pleaded with you to be one, to, to be united, to speak the same thing, to be of the same mind and the same judgment, not to be divided. I said that there should be no schism in the body. I said that there is one body, just like there's one God and one Lord and one faith. What do you mean, what denomination am I? There is none. There's the church. Isn't that the way it should be? That's what God had in mind. And if people on a deserted island can pick up a Bible and read it and put it into practice. And if they can just be the church of Jesus Christ without having ties to any denomination, then why can't we do the same thing in Knoxville, Tennessee? I believe we can. The fact that we're on a particular corner situated in a city doesn't mean that we're adding to the division at all. It may mean that we're practicing, simply mean that we're practicing New Testament Christianity, that we've picked up our Bibles and are just simply trying to live by it. That's what we need to do. And as we close, I want to ask you a couple questions that um, I think are relevant. First of all, I would like to ask everyone here, are you a part of the specific church that Jesus had in mind when he said, I will build my church? Is the church of which you're a member, that very church, that very body that Jesus said he's going to build? If you are, then that's good. And so should everybody else. And if you aren't, then you need to leave and find it because that's the Lord's desire.
Also, I want you to consider that it was never the desire of the Lord that someone who tries to find and understand the message of Christ better, it was never his desire that one would come into a city and say, um, where's, the, where's the local church? Well, now, which brand do you want? Because down here on this corner, there's this kind, and, and back over here, there's that kind, and way over there, there's, there's this brand. Christianity is not like breakfast cereal. It shouldn't be. We've turned it into that, or men have turned it into that. See, I can get Kellogg's Raisin Bran, or I can get Post Raisin Bran. That's not what God had in mind. I am not pleading for a brand of Christianity this, this evening. I don't want you to be, as some would say, Church of Christ Christians. I am not pleading for a church of Christ religion. I'm pleading for the body of Christ. And if all we are is just another sect, another brand of Christianity, then folks, the last one out tonight, just flip off the lights, lock it up, and let's just shut it down. Because we, if we have nothing unique to offer, then we are standing in opposition to the will of God. If we are not the New Testament church, if we are just but another brand, then we are, we are standing in opposition to the prayer of Jesus. But if, on the other hand, we have a unique plea, a plea that says, I want to be and only be that which the Bible teaches. I just want to be the church. And we're going to be governed by the Word of God, and we're going to let it determine our practices we're going to let it uh, determine what we believe, what we teach, then we have a right to exist and to call people to us. And so back to the question, our call is not to join a denomination. Our call is to ask men to leave denominationalism, to leave sectarianism, to leave the divisiveness of religion and simply be a member of the Lord's church. Not a church of Christ kind of church, but the Lord's church. The Lord's church is not a sect. It is not a denomination. It's not a part of a denomination. It is the body of the redeemed. And that's all I want to be. And I hope that's all you want to be. And I hope that there are many, many people in this world who are attracted to and who are compelled by that very same call to be New Testament Christians, to shed the baggage of the doctrines and innovations of men and just have the freedom to follow Jesus. If you're here tonight and you desire that freedom to simply be a child of God, Nothing more, just a child of God, a member of his church. The way to become that is the same as it was in the first century. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. If you need to do that tonight, why don't you make that decision? We'll assist you in that. If you're a child of God already but unfaithful, 
Maybe you need the prayers of your brethren here. That's part of the reason we're a body of Christ, is that we're here for each other, to pray, to strengthen one another. If you need our prayers, we'll pray with you if you'll come as we stand together and sing.